This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Molecules and Women. And the author is Paula Giorgio, and Paula joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Paula. Good afternoon. Great to have you with us. Interesting, unique journey from a women's point of view, uh, a pilgrim's journey, as you call it, through the lives of different women and pivotal moments, some disguised as ordinary events, others where the loss so overwhelmingly or the joy of loved ones so enriching that the well from which wisdom manifests is revealed. So this is a, a, a deep kind of a journey into the chambers of the heart, as you call it. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. Well, before we get into these 15 different vignettes on these 15 different women, we'll find out why you took this approach. But first of all, tell us about yourself and then how all this came about. Um, well, that's, you know, it was a very interesting you know, chain of events. I am a writer, and I had actually, back in 2000, walked the Camino de Santiago, which is a pilgrimage in the Pyrenees in Spain, and found myself a few years later expecting to, to record that journey and write, write about it. And I was in a hermit's hut in Amherst, Massachusetts, expecting to have a couple of weeks of silence and solitude. And all of a sudden, I woke up from a dream, and there was a story plane, and it was not one known to me specifically, but I woke up and had that, you know, plane in my in my mind's eye at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I woke up, as a writer will do sometimes, and begin to write. And thinking it was just a cute little vignette and a cute little story that came to me, I didn't pay a whole, whole bunch of attention to it. And then the next night, I spent the next day going back to the manuscript that I was intending to write, and found myself the next night woken up a second time and the same story was playing only it was fast forwarded decades later to the characters having aged and as a writer you take your muse you take your inspiration from wherever it comes so I played with the stories and wrote them thinking they were just interesting little short stories that I might flush out later in at a different time and then when I returned to California after my time in Massachusetts, expecting to continue writing the Camino manuscript, I just kept meeting with women at different junctures, friends or acquaintances, and something they would say or some story they would tell me about themselves would spark that same kind of response of just having to sit and write what they were giving me. And some of it was just little details. Some of it was very, very specific uh, in details. And again, I kept pushing it off to the side until finally on the fourth story, which is Girl's House, I was actually requested to write about this Chinese village back in the turn of the last century, um, a Buddhist village with certain traditions. And at that point, 
they, as they say in the, in the healing practices, when the bell rings three times, you have to answer. So I put aside the writing I was working on and began to dedicate the next three years to these voices, these women, their, their stories, and with their permission, record their stories. And in some cases, lots of detail was afforded me. In other cases, it was just a broad stroke of an event where I was allowed to use the muse and me to fill in the blanks. And that's how molecules and women came to be. You have a poet mentor who said that your book was controversial because you go where most people don't want to go, and that's into the chambers of the heart. What is he talking about? Well, um, especially at this time, he was referring a lot to the local a current genre of writing and film and creative process and everybody's kind of getting into the grit, the you know, the gritty sources of humanity. And my stories, not my stories, these stories, they're not mine, they're other women's stories, um, are about moments in lives when it's where the heart, where our relationship with each other, our relationship in nature, um, is is what is important and the trappings of the exterior world somehow fall away, whatever we're involved in, not making them not important, but forcing us into sources where we have to deal with each other. We have to deal with the relationships in our lives, whether they be grandmothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or brothers or, or acquaintances. And in doing so, we open up a piece of the puzzle that is who we are. And so... A lot of people avoid those those places because they can be painful. They can bring up childhood memories such as suicide or death or the loss of a loved one, or they can even sometimes enjoy um, be difficult to bring up because there might be a longing or a, you know sadness of not having that in happening anymore. So I think that's what Clive was referring to as far as where other people are more hesitant to go, and this, these stories go, they strike deep into those corners of the heart. The title story, Molecules and Women, tell us a little bit about this little girl named Willow and her kind of uh, surprising her mother, Leona. Right. Well, that was the first story. That was actually the the, the seed, the first seed that woke me up. And... In that story, when I woke up, it was like I saw these characters, and I knew them. I knew everything about them. I knew their backgrounds, their history. Um, it's it's the set. The setting is in the South, and it's an interracial mother and daughter, and their the father has passed away, and it's just an afternoon moment, split moment, where they're doing the chores together, and the wisdom of this little child. Uh, there's a deep wisdom which we sometimes are surprised when children can come up with the most profound things, but in reality, they are closer to the source sometimes than we are. As we age, we kind of lose that connection to source. And so this little child brings up her, her questions about death and dying, and the mother um, is, you know, in the story, the mother is not a, a you know, an academic woman, and she's, you know... She had an academic husband, and all of a sudden this child seems to have innately been born with a lot of the wisdom of the father. So the, the, this little inter, 
play, this little conversation that takes place between the mother and daughter, on the surface may seem so childlike and pro, you know, and just fun. And at the at the listening of it, the mother is awakened into that this child has a very deep connection to her father and a deep connection to nature. And the mother questions, is she going to be capable? As most mothers, we do question, are we right for the, the uh, are we up to the measure that raising our children is going to call upon us? And it's all done in the very quiet afternoon, hanging the laundry up on the clothesline on a windy day. So it's tender. It's a very tender story. And that's what caught me is that the wisdom of this tender, tender, tiny story. And that as a mother and as a grandmother and as other women in my lives have expressed many, many times, are we up to it? (laughs) Are we ready for the challenge that our children will bring to us? And of course, the answer is we must be because they're here. So that is what's portrayed in Molecules and the, the, the title story, Molecules. Each story is very unique, stands on its own? Yes, it does. There is a thread that is woven after the writing, and I had to sit in contemplation for with the 15 chapters laid out on little pages on the floor, realizing that there's a thread here, and even though it wasn't the chronological thread of how they came to me, but there was a thread that was woven, and one, even though the characters are different, the names, the locations, the continents even are different, but there was a thread, and so I tried very hard to allow the reader to experience each story independently, but also interdependent in the sense of how we learn or don't learn our lessons in life. At times, we're we're not up to the measure, and we may fall short, and so we have to acknowledge that those times, too, when that happens. So, yes, they're interconnected in theme and in weaving, but not in content or character. Is your book just for women? Absolutely not. Um, It's a story about women's moments in lives, but of course in every woman's lives there are men, there are fathers and uncles and brothers and lovers and husbands. So no, um, and in fact some of my best readers have been men of different ages who have found themselves. I had one man who's married to a very famous author, and when he was reading one of the stories, he went, ah, that's what Isabel's been trying to tell me. And it was this little light bulb of just an insight to how we operate, how we function in crises, or how we function in joy. So I have found men to, you know, overwhelmingly like the book, and they're actually sometimes even more demonstrative on, on how much they like the book because it seems to be a surprise. Some of the stories surprise them, whereas maybe in some cases women are, it resonates with them, but you know, not so much as a surprise as much as, ah, oh, yes, someone else has the same problems or issues or joys that I have. Are they all very serious, making us really ponder life, or there are some with more on the light side? Oh, absolutely. There's... Um, they they kind of all make us ponder sometimes with a smile. There's three or four of the stories that are very lighthearted. Um, Enora's Purse is a very small story that 
of a woman um, who happens to be at a at a wedding in Scotland in the Highlands, and all of a sudden there's just a conversation with the elder matriarch of the family about a purse. And this little 10-minute conversation that takes place is unfolding how the elder woman's youth during World War II and, you know, just her life story gets told in this 10-minute little conversation. of, um, And it's fun. And it's, you know, it's uh, lots of giggles in it. And there's a lot of the stories where people, you get a good giggle, even even if they're a serious story. There's There's a lot of, well, women laugh a lot. We like to giggle. So that's definitely into the mix. In just the time we have left, why don't you tell us a little bit about one more of these vignettes? Uh, I have. Well, I'll let you pick. What would you like to share with us? Well, uh, the one, the one that I find my favorites is the painting, and it's an Italian story from a immigrant family in San Francisco, and a young granddaughter, a granddaughter told from the perspective of the granddaughter who was raised by her grandparents. And the, the title of the story, the painting, is referring to a very unusual painting that sat behind the bed of the grandparents, um, unlike a more classical, typical Italian Catholic family with a crucifix. It was a painting of a voluptuous woman. And the young granddaughter, adult granddaughter, who loses her grandmother, finds... Um, some answers to the family's questions. And it's a very serious story, but there's also the super ability to transcend, you know, decades of time and space and in this painting arriving and coming from Italy and coming to America and then 50, 60 years later being in the hands of a granddaughter. Um, how the love of the grandparents and the parents and then to her gets brought through and the painting is a vehicle um, to be able to tell that story and, and deal with some very difficult difficult topics, but at the same time, and the end result being that there was this this family heritage, this ancestry was started in a very deep love, and and it follows through the family story. We have time, Paula, just for a closing thought. What would you like to share with us? Well, what I would like to share is that this. These stories were an amazing, extraordinary gift that was given to me and the opportunity to write them and to understand, obviously, the internal writer always reflecting, always reflecting, how does this reflect and relate to me, and then keeping true to the voices of the people whose stories you're telling, the biographical stories of someone else and making sure that you get out of the way as a writer. You step aside and allow their voice to tell their story and not not make it personal for you. So that was an amazing challenge. And then just the absolute gratitude that I received and the gratitude that I've received from the the women involved. Um, they have unilaterally been so profoundly happy to find and the most extraordinary single line was when Lei Ling of Girl's House read her story on Chestnut Street in San Francisco and she Tears formed in her eyes, and I thought I'd done something wrong. And she said, no, I didn't know my story was important enough to tell. So my last impression is that everyone, men, women, children, all of our stories are important enough to tell. And it's always nice to have someone to listen. We've been listening to Paula 
Giorgio. She's the author of her book, Molecules and Women. Paula, tell us how to get your book. Uh, well, it can be reached at all the outlets, um, at Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, and directly from the iUniverse bookstore online site. And hopefully soon it will actually be in the bookstores. And I also have a website, www.paulagiorgio.com, that the book can be found and purchased online. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A New Beginning for Humankind, A Recipe for Lasting Peace on Earth. And the author is R.B. Harath. And we welcome R.B. to iUniverse Radio. Hello, R.B. Hi, Steve. Nice to be on your program. Great to have you with us. Let me read what you've written about your book before we start discussing the details. You say this, The world is reaching a nuclear tipping point and a catastrophe looms. Even the United Nations can't seem to do anything about the threat. Given the circumstances, people everywhere need to unite to prevent a disaster. In this new study, peace activist R.B. Harath explains what's at stake and what everyday people can do to solve the problem. Well, that's great to have some solutions. Uh, I think we see a lot of problems in the world. Well, first of all, R.B., tell us a little bit about yourself, and then tell us how did you come to write this book? I see this book 
as an end product of my lifelong search for a way for humans to coexist without major conflicts and wars. Maybe I need to explain this, then you can understand me too. I first grew up in Sri Lanka amid rising ethnic tension there. Even as a young person, I, I understood that this situation was created by the ethnocentric identity politics in the country. The remedy, I thought, even as a young boy, was to ensure the civil, human, and political rights of the entire citizenry. Then, still, as a young adult and a student leader, I began to fight for these rights in my high school and university days. And some years later, when the country was finally taken with a separatist war, I founded and led the new political party in the country, providing a political platform for change to genuine democracy with equal rights and freedoms for all Sri Lankans. After the separatist war broke out regardless, and the general election due to due in 1983 was also cancelled. I left the country in 1984. Ever since, I have lived outside. In all, I have lived in several countries in four continents. Still, all this all this time, I kept my eyes and ears open to grasp the real driving forces behind major human conflicts wherever they occurred and the lessons we could learn from each of them. All this led me to write a number of books. Steve, one published in 2002, proposed a political solution to end the Sri Lankan crisis peacefully. Of course, as you know, it didn't happen that way. It ended up in real war. Among the other books I wrote, there was also a book of poems for children with a message of love, peace, and unity. The new book, A New Beginning for Humankind, was in my mind for decades now. However, all early attempts to start writing it ended up in procrastination. All this changed on the day I laid my eyes on my first grandchild, Chantal. Needless to say, I was overwhelmed with joy to see the new addition to the family. At the same time, however, I was struck with some pain and agony thinking of the potential dangers of a global nuclear disaster she may have to endure if a third world war broke out in her lifetime. This gave me the extra motivation I badly needed to write this book. That's how the book came about, Steve. RB, who does the book appeal to and why? Well, uh, I believe the book will appeal to peace activists, scholars, and organizations, and students and researchers of political science, journalists, and, of course, general readers interested in peace and security, world affairs, politics, military affairs, wars, and history. And there are four striking features in the book, I believe, Steve, will attract them. The most updated information about ongoing major crisis in the world, 
the hidden threats to world peace which we don't normally see, and blatant limitation of the present means of conflict resolution, and a creative novel approach for the future. So, I feel the book, because of these features, this book will definitely attract those people I mentioned. Thank you. Why do you think that the world is gearing up for World War III and that it could end up in a nuclear holocaust? Well, it is a very good question that brings me to the heart of my main analysis in this book, Steve. In my research for this book, I found that some of the ongoing major conflicts in the world indeed have the dire potential to deteriorate into a global fiasco given the right conditions. The conflicts of most concern to me were the ones between Israelis and Palestinians, Israel and Iran, India and Pakistan, and between North Korea and its adversarial neighbors. And still, I also found that the changing world dynamics over the coming years and decades are not going to help us. On the contrary, they would only worsen the situation. And sadly, I see the world getting back to a multipolar regime as in the 19th century in Europe that finally led to the dark periods of massacres and wars culminating in World War One and World War Two. So because of all these reasons, I believe the chances for some of the existing conflicts or even a new one to deteriorate into a worldwide fiasco are real. The main thinking behind uh, such arguments that uh, nuclear weapons will never be used appears to rest on the assured mutual destruction inevitable in such confrontations. And no doubt, it does install some, some sense of restraint. However, I don't see that as total restraint. I say that due to many reasons. And first thing, of course, that comes to anybody's mind would be the people who engaged in World War One and World War Two never used such constraints or restraint. And uh, then uh, there are also now new concerns that even nuclear weapons could get into the hands of suicide attackers of global rich. At the same time, International wars could be triggered by a human error or an intelligence failure. And now we know that for sure, much better. Now, 2003, Iraqi war is a good example. After all, more and more nations are attempting to develop nuclear weapons, not because there is assurance that such weapons will never be used. I think we should not fool ourselves to think otherwise. Under any event, Steve, the expert opinion has always been that those who possess nuclear weapons would use them in the next world war. 
For example, in 1995, in their joint manifesto, uh, Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein, they too said, I quote, in view of the fact that in any future world war, nuclear weapons will certainly be employed. I repeat that part. Nuclear weapons will certainly be employed, and that such weapons threaten the continued existence of mankind. End of the quote. Then in 2003, as you may remember, former Secretaries of State, George Charles, Henry Kissinger, former U.S. Secretary of Defense, William Perry, and former Senator Sam Nunn, based at Stanford University Who Institution, said in a joint paper, I quote, the accelerating spread of nuclear weapons, nuclear know-how, and nuclear material has brought us to a nuclear tipping point. End of the quote. So, of course, because of these reasons only, I believe that we are heading the next world war, and it would be fought with nuclear weapons. Thank you. RB, won't the existing global checks and balances be sufficient in dealing with the situation you have just described? Well, still, uh, different people can look at this differently. But in my view, certainly not. Look at the most crucial failures of the present global system. And first thing that comes to anybody's mind would be our failure to control nuclear proliferation. And you know, only one nation had nuclear weapons in 1945. And today, nine nations have developed. And they are stockpiled in 16 nations across the globe. And some others are also trying hard to develop theirs. The fact of the matter, or, or the open secret, is that all these nuclear weapons, all these stockpiles on the surface of the green are more than enough to, to turn the entire human species into ashes within seconds. Either at all, you can see the present system has even failed to get all nations to comply with the global resolutions passed by the United Nations. Notably, the most powerful nations are among the main culprits. Also, it has failed to prevent many massacres, such as genocides in Rwanda and Darfur, Srebrenica massacres, and so on. And of course, it has even failed to control unilateral global election by powerful nations, 2003 nations. U.S. invasion of Iraq, 2008, Russian war in Georgia are two good examples. And the fact of the matter is, we have to accept the fact that world community as such has no control over such situations. That is not all. It has also failed to bring lasting solutions to many all conflicts that are lingering and are posing significant threats to world peace as the ones I mentioned before. The list of failures indeed continues. And it's a long list. The frightening thing in all this is there is no cohesive plan or program to reverse this trend. As a result, I can see 
for the future of worsening conflicts, continuing growth and distribution of nuclear weapons, and further build-up of world tension, all preparing the world to explore at an appropriate time. We have about three minutes left, R.B. What does your book offer in this situation? Now, first, Steve, we critically examine and assess the risk levels associated with ongoing conflicts. Then it describes a creative five-fold strategy to prevent the global calamity lying in wait. This strategy primarily aims at reducing, the global, reducing global tension and further strengthening of global checks and balances. It is, that is not all. It also lays out a novel, revolutionary approach to lasting peace with a new beginning for humankind and a steadfast purpose for its implementation. After all, avoiding wars at the worst of times is certainly not peace. This particular steadfast process will influence trade habits that promote war and develop those that promote peace. In my analysis, I found there are Worst enemy behind all these ongoing uh, conflicts, greed for scarce resources, social and political vendettas, despotic rules, and identity politics. And what we have to promote is caring and sharing, giving and forgiving and forgetting, uh, accountability or responsibility, and treating the well-being and happiness of every other human just as one's own, irrespective of race, ethnicity, tribe religion, language, culture, and so on. It's a mind development process to you that will have the ripple effect, ripple effect, once you start it. Psychology says that happens in such processes always. It is based on proven processes in other areas of human endeavors, like the modern human, modern environmental movement is one of them. Of course, the book explains a few other examples. Every able human can play an important role in this, in an individual capacity or as a member of a group, say family, schoolmates, classmates, workmates, community, nation, and so on. It is a process, Steve, that can transfer the present world of tension, fear, and uncertainty to one of relief, resilience, and lasting peace. Well, thank you, R.B. Thank you for being with us with your book titled A New Beginning for Humankind. Tell us how to get your book. Well, by ordering through a local bookstore, by contacting the publisher, iUniverse, directly, or any other major online retail shop, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Google Books, Google.Google.Books.Google.Ca, and Chapter Indigo. You can also order to my private website, rbherald.com. It's not set up for that right now, but it will be there. And at the end, I must say, Steve, uh, uh, we are talking about this book at a time, uh, at a very good time. It is a time to order this book. It could be a terrific Christmas gift to a family member or a friend interested in seeing the world more peaceful and resilient. Thank you. Thank you, R.B., for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you for having me on the program.
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 or 3 Central on Toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Perilous Paths, the story of Robert McClellan, Indian fighter, soldier, trapper, explorer, and member of the John J. Astor Fur Company. And the author is George G. McClellan, and George joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, George. Well, hello. It's, it's very nice to talk to you. Well, it's always great to talk about history of real people that have gone before us. Uh, in this case, uh, your fascination with this incredible uh, wilderness man, this uh, trailblazer, uh, frontiersman. You're somewhat of a, an adventurer yourself. We'll find out about that because of your experiences in the past. But here's the life and adventures of Robert McClellan, uh, grew up in the Allegheny's frontier, learning Indian skills and languages, uh, as you write about him, uh, became packers for the American Army, moving into the Ohio Territory. Uh, even uh, because of his Indian skills, became a spy and a ranger for General Mad Anthony Wayne, we know that name, and became an Army quartermaster, ending up in St. Louis, where he became a fur trapper and trader, uh, of course, uh, a lot of history here. Uh, we know about John Jacob Astor Fur Company. We know about the Oregon Trail. We, of course, know about Lewis and Clark. This is a very uh, famous time in the expansion of the United States. A uh, critical time, right? Yes, it is. It was critical because uh, the fur trades were opening up and the British were north of us and they wanted to claim the Spaniards were west and southwest of us 
and they had a claim, and uh, they wanted no intrusion from Americans, but we were going to do it anyway. Well, and it took some uh, really uh, pioneer-type uh, frontiersmen that were literally didn't seem like they were afraid of anything. Isn't that interesting? Can you imagine doing that today? Oh, my uh, goodness. Maybe the unknown. Yeah. But you know there are savage Indians out there, and but how to get through it without getting your head lifted, that was... A, that was a monumental piece of courage that they had to endure to, do, to even think about doing that. Well, the Indians and then just the uh, hardships of just the territory, the frontier, the weather. I mean, it's uh, more than most of us can comprehend living the way we do today. But uh, before we get into more of the details about Robert McClellan, uh, George, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're so interested in this story. Well, I was born in an area of of Southern California, they had a lot of pioneer history, the San Bernardino Valley. And uh, California had a lot of history and wasn't too old when I was born. And the areas that were available to me, even as a youth, sparked my interest in Western history, gold mining history, uh, pioneers uh, who wanted to cross the Mojave Desert. And I was able to, as I got older, to visit these places and, and see these places, and, and I fell in love with history, just the idea of what and how people lived before me compared to what I was living in uh, it was was just uh, was just fascinating. Uh, by the same token, even my children are now fascinated that I lived in an area where there were no interstates or freeways. So if I wanted to go from my house, it was on a two-lane road that wound up and down and around mountains and things like that. It didn't cut a straight path. So we all have our differences, and people who look back are interested in that. History caught me. And then as I moved around the world, um, I went to other historical places, uh, historical in the sense that they affected America, the Philippine Islands, for example, which was important to us in World War II because of the uh, the Corregidor, the Death March, the Bataan Death March, I mean to say, and the prisoners who were kept at Cabana Tuan up in central Luzon. These were all places that I got to visit. And then later I lived in Hawaii where the Pearl Harbor attack occurred. And, and then later I lived in Europe and spent several years in Europe and got to see all the battlefields there. And then moved here to Georgia where it's rife with Civil War history. And I get to Enjoy all that as well. I'm, I, I probably, my, my wife says I was born 100 years too late. <laughs> well, at the same time, uh, your life has been filled, as you've pointed out, with a lot of travel, but also adventure, even danger and intrigue. Well, that was the na nature of the job. And unlike the, the television show of the same name, uh, our work was a little, a little uh, less dramatic and uh, uh, more detailed. But uh, it took us to places that we had to go, yes. Certainly did. Well, George, uh, is Robert a ancestor? Robert McClellan, is he an ancestor of George McClellan? Well, we have to be careful. When you say George McClellan, people often think of the Union general, George B. McClellan, and I'm not related to him either. Uh, he had two children, and they both died without issue. So if we have a common thread, it's before him. However, I cannot say that I am related directly to Robert McClellan because there's no evidence he took a wife or had a family. His brother did, though, and his brother was in uh, 
was the sheriff for three tours in Butler County, Ohio, which is just west of Cincinnati, and Hamilton. And uh, they were all both packers for the Army, but uh, Robert became a soldier, and and his uh, brother did not. And his brother stayed there in Hamilton and raised a family and, and died there. McClellan, he just went off on a foot tour of America, being one of the first to get there if he could. I, I cannot claim that I'm directly related, but I think there's a I think there has to be a, a tie there somewhere, and we're looking for it. Now there are a lot of books written about the this time period, the Ohio Indian Wars. But it seems like, as you found, most of them are for juveniles, and of course, school textbooks of of late, as you point out, usually ignore this period because uh, it was so brutally. Uh, it was just a, a brutal attack on Native Americans. So uh, yours is yours is factual as much as you can through your research and you uh, bring to life a very important part of history. Well, that's, thank you very much. It's uh, it's true. There was it was brutal, but not always so. And uh, there were Indian tribes that they encountered who offered them assistance and food and and uh, made them canoes and traded for horses and and furs and that sort of thing. And then there were the other tribes like the Blackfoot who brooked no interference in their lives and would kill anybody who went into it, whether they were another Indian tribe or white men or anything else. So that was the politics of Indians. It was like that. Yeah, it was a hard time. You had to pick your battles and know when you could win them and be skilled at survival. Now, Robert McClellan was part of a very important uh, fur trading company. Uh, uh, were, were they the number one fur traders at that time? Uh, they were the number one American fur traders. The Louisiana Purchase covered the entire central portion of the United States, extended even into a little bit of Canada. Canada was definitely British, and Canada had two competing fur companies, the Northwest Company, and the Hudson Bay Company. They were in competition for furs with John Jacob Astor. Uh, and this was this started right after the Lewis and Clark expedition. The British, or the Canadians, if you will, were, had pretty much covered Western Canada even before Americans got out there. Uh, there was even a, a Brit or a Canadian who got to the Pacific Coast on foot first. But the Lewis and Clark for American history were the ones who opened up that territory. Astor, John Jacob Astor, organized this company to find a foot route to Astoria, and he also sent a ship around the Horn to arrive at the mouth of the Columbia River at the same time. And the, the trip out, and that's the trip from east to west, was led by a fellow named Hunt, and uh, they arrived there, but they arrived there ragtag, and they took a route completely different than Lewis and Clark's because they wanted to avoid the Blackfeet Indians. And they discovered the hardships of the Snake River through uh, through Idaho and uh, the deserts that they encountered. Most people don't realize that eastern Oregon is primarily a desert. Uh, Wyoming, the south half of Wyoming is primarily a desert, but it, although it's a mile high, so the winters get brutally cold. But these are things they encountered, and uh, they had to carry what they wore and what they ate. And 
when they were out, they had to shoot what they what they um, had to eat. And and as romantic as it sounds, the buckskin is not that good of a garment after it gets wet. And moccasins would wear out in a day or two, so they had they were constantly repairing or rebuilding moccasins, making new moccasins. Interesting story. Things that are absolutely not known uh, to to modern day people unless they read about it. So McClellan is uh, in competition. His main competitor and protagonist is this guy named Manuel Lisa. What was the big conflict there? Manuel Lisa, interesting character. He, uh, if if you just listen to McClellan and his first partner Robert Crooks. You think Manuel Lisa was the biggest scallywag the world ever produced? He was a, he was Spanish. He was born in Spanish colonial New Orleans. His uh, his father was a government official in St. Augustine, Florida, where his mother was born in St. Augustine, Florida. Coincidentally, I lived in that county, St. John's County, uh, for four years when I was working for the Navy. So I'm acquainted with the history of the area there as well. In any event, Manuelisa, the French were instrumental in opening up the Missouri River. That's why we had names like St. Louis. And if you look hard enough, you'll find a lot of French names throughout the, the, along the river, the Missouri, uh, Mississippi River. Lisa went up there with the intent to become a Indi- uh, trader with the Indians. And uh, the Custu brothers were the big, the rich people in charge of that, and you didn't do anything without going through them. You had to have supplies, you had to have guns, you had to have traps, canoes, barges, and men, and they supplied those things. So Manuelisa uh, had a jump on McClellan and Crooks, and they were kind of like freebooters. They went in there late and tried to do what they wanted to do, but they were poaching on what Lisa considered his property. Lisa had already established had already established uh, relations with the several Indian tribes up the Missouri River, the Missouri River being the most important, as far as they were concerned, avenue into the Northwest Territory of what was then still the, known as Louisiana Purchase. And you met different kinds of Indians along the river. You met the Sioux and the Arapahoes and the Arikias and the Mandans, and some were helpful and some were not. And And it was Lisa who... McClellan and Crooks fought, had the Sioux Indians stop him on his trip up the river and, and uh, let him, uh, forbid him from any further progress on the river. And so there were these differences of opinion as to who was who and what was what. In the end, McClellan lost that battle. He got robbed by the Indians. And uh, that's just before he met uh, Wilson Price Hunt, who was organizing the Astor Fur Company expedition. What would you say is Robert McClellan's greatest achievement? Well, he survived, uh, that he survived the ordeal and and made it back to St. Louis where where a few years later he died. Uh, the the um, Believe it or not, he died of being bled to death. That was still the art form in those days. Um his greatest achievement, he just survived that thing. He went on foot from east to west and returned again. And we're talking 2,000 miles, starting at St. Louis. And probably had a lot of Indians uh, ready to uh, kill him if they could find him. Well, 
certainly the Crow Indians. That were that was the lot that uh, they were more afraid of. The Crows were between them and the Blackfeet, and they wanted to stay away from the Blackfoot Indians. But uh, the Crows, they they were wide ranging through what is now Jackson Hole, the Green River Valley, uh, the Wind River Valley in Wyoming, and uh, and also in the Snake River Valley in Idaho. And that's where the Crows stole all their horses and half of their equipment and put them on foot on their trip back. You know, they were very wary of the Crows. They tried to tried to do things to avoid being seen by them, but not always successful. But all of them survived. The six of them survived. We're not killed by the Crows. The book is titled Perilous Paths. Uh, George McClellan, the author, he's written this story focusing on the hardships these great pioneers, uh, frontiersmen faced and, uh, and the politics that shaped the country they were exploring. Uh, George, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available from Barnes & Noble and uh, Amazon.com. And uh, our universe who published it also uh, prevails, prevails the book uh, uh, for anybody who inquires. And uh, it, while it's not a long book, it's detailed and it's action-packed and it's illustrated. Most books this size aren't illustrated, but uh, a little side story there. My illustrator is a fellow named Mark Menendez, and he, he is a direct descendant of the first colonial governor of Spanish Florida and painted his portrait, which is in the governor's house in St. Augustine. And while I, that picture is only six years old, that painting, uh, I, I have not seen it, but I have been in the governor's house many times, and so we have a little close community um, relationship with Mark Menendez and I, but he had fun doing my paintings. I even put him, told him to paint himself, put himself into one of the pictures, and he <laughs> is, is a new full of, of uh, uh, Canadian voyagers, and he's in the right front seat of that first canoe. And that's what he looks like. <laughs> Every character in his own right. Well, George, we appreciate you sharing your story with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. You're entirely welcome. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to me. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.